Do you enjoy staying up to date with current literature? Need a convenient way to digest the latest and greatest articles published in Wilderness and Environmental Medicine? Well, welcome to Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live. We've arranged for the primary authors of some of the best articles in our latest issue to walk you through their work and help you to understand what they found. We want you to learn and enjoy doing it. And now, host and media editor for Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live, Dr. Jeremy Jocelyn. Welcome to Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live. I'm your host, Jeremy Jocelyn. This is a teleconference journal club turned podcast for Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, the official journal of the Wilderness Medical Society. I am excited to be here, and I'm excited to cover these two articles from this issue of the journal. The first article we're going to talk about today is Outdoor Activity and High Altitude Exposure During Pregnancy, a Survey of 459 Pregnancies. The other article we'll cover is the Wilderness Medical Society Practice Guidelines for the Prevention and Treatment of Drowning. Now, these are two great articles to be discussing, but we're also going to discuss case reports from this issue of the journal because I love these case reports. Uh, it's one of my favorite parts of the journal, every issue is I go right for the case reports and uh, we'll review those today. So first up, we've got a great show lined up. The first article we're gonna talk about, outdoor activity and high altitude exposure during pregnancy, a survey of 459 pregnancies. For this article, we have Dr. Linda Keyes here, and she's gonna go ahead and tell us about this paper. So Linda, why don't you go ahead and start us off with a brief description of the paper, and then we'll get into some of the questions by our reviewer that we have, Dr. Jay Gupta. So Linda, go ahead. Sure, thanks for having me on, Jeremy. Um, our paper is, basically we conducted an online survey targeted at um, healthy, active women um, asking about their high altitude exposure during pregnancy and um, the kinds of things that they were doing at high altitude and then whether or not they had any pregnancy-related complications. And our, our goal with this paper was basically to get some preliminary data on a population that's incredibly difficult to study. Great. I know Daryl Marcias. Am I saying it right? Marcias, yes. Oh, great. Yeah. Your Spanish is getting better, though. Uh, thank you. Uh, he's going to be the reviewer today, and uh, he has a couple of questions prepared. And we're going to just kind of bounce things back and forth here and try to get into this paper a little bit. So, Daryl, why don't you uh, jump in with the first question? Yeah, yeah. Hey, Linda, it's great to meet you and uh, appreciate your willingness to discuss this paper with us. And, you know, just briefly, I think it's a nice, timely, robust survey. It's pretty detailed. And I like it because, unfortunately, there's not a lot of info concerning pregnancy and exercise at altitude out there. And I think it's important. And it really opens us up to some future research ideas like studying exercise at altitude for pregnant women um, beside the usual hiking, swimming, yoga. And, you know, anecdotally, I found that, you know, some pregnant women can really engage in some pretty hardcore activities such as skiing on and off piste. And what was interesting is maybe later on you can comment what the story was with that one woman who went skydiving in her second trimester. That's just crazy. <laughs> but 
anyways, my, my first question is in the paper, you listed the type of outdoor activities by trimester. And it seems that most of the activities I just mentioned above, the skiing, climbing, the running, well, it seems that the riskier activities seem to occur mostly in the first trimester. So I'm wondering, did the women know about their pregnancy after their trip to high altitude, or did most of the first trimester women know that they were pregnant before their high altitude sport? That's a really good question. And we did not ask whether or not they knew they were pregnant when they were doing things in their first trimester. So I can't, I can't say for sure. My sense is, uh, and this is the reason we actually presented the data as first trimester and first and second trimester only in all trimesters, because um, I think there's, uh, there were probably certain women who did certain things without knowing that they were pregnant. Um, but also by the time you get to your second trimester, it's a lot harder to do many of these sports just because there's a belly in the way. And um, mm. so I, you know, I think naturally it makes it, state of being pregnant makes it hard to do things, especially like kayaking and biking. The skydiver, that was amazing. There were actually two skydivers in the study. Um, and one of them quit skydiving after her first trimester. I don't really know more than that other than she's very brave. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. Wow. She might've been French. I don't know from my experience in France. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> well, actually it, it kind of segues on onto another question that I guess your study is showing that the majority were from the United States and about a fifth were from France. I, I could be wrong. I know that the, um, the survey tool was, uh, in English and French. And I'm, I was kind of wondering if you had any idea which subset continued the more risky activities overall, the American or the French women. And I was kind of wondering why France, why didn't we add, you know, Germany or Spain or some other countries? Yeah. So, okay. Just to clarify that, um, we advertised the survey, which was in English only, um, mostly in US-based web outlets, but we distributed the list widely to um, uh, International Mountaineering uh, Association listservs. And, and, and then the other kind of target website were, because we wanted to get women who had been to high altitude during pregnancy, and then also parenting websites. And when the, at the time that we were conducting the survey, I was actually living in France. So the survey was only in English, but um, there were, it was advertised on some international websites that were basically based in France. And those were mostly targeted to English speaking expatriates. And so 80% of the, 81% of the women who answered our survey were from the US and the other 20%, um, which was 57 women were from 10 other countries, which included France. And in fact, it was fairly evenly distributed amongst, um, France and uh, other European countries and Australia and New Zealand. Interesting. And I'll, I'll just say that the skydivers were actually American, but the one woman who went to 20, over 24,000 feet during her pregnancy was Swiss. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I wonder if she was trekking or climbing. That's, that's Swiss. I happen to know her, so the inside information is that she was on an expedition found out she was pregnant right before she was going. And she said, there's no way in hell I'm not going. 
<laughs> is she doing all right? And she presented herself as a case report at a conference uh, many years ago. <laughs> nice. She, she did fine, and she has a teenage daughter who's also fine. Oh, that's great. That's great. Wow. Well, you know, an interesting point you made is that it seems that most of the respondents were, for whatever reason, they were not counseled on safe altitude practices during their pregnancies. I guess it was about uh, 80, 81 percent. Is that right? Something like that. Mm -hmm. And three percent were told not to go beyond 24 40 meters or 8,000 feet for those of us who are metrically uh, challenged. So I was wondering if that 3% that were told not to go, if that subset of women with previous risks or illnesses you mentioned in table two were in there. And in fact, I was wondering, actually, could you go over table two for our listeners as to some of the underlying medical problems of the 298 respondents? Because you mentioned things like you know, thyroid disease and stuff like that. So kind of, you know, go over some of the important um, medical conditions that you guys uh, found from the survey respondents. Sure. So um, table two lists in order of frequency, the most common medical problems. And these um, were, uh, this was an open-ended question where people wrote in, um, although I believe we asked for a, a few specifics, but um, Asthma was by far the most common one, and that occurred in about 10% of the women. And then thyroid disease, which again was, it was very, because it was a write-in answer, it was hard to specify whether that was hypo or hyper. So we lumped everything together as thyroid disease. Um, and then depression and psychiatric, other psychiatric illnesses, autoimmune diseases, hypertension, cancer, and then a smattering of other, th other things that included um, uh, hypercoagulability, lung diseases that were not specified, Raynaud's, celiac, endometriosis. Um, and then there was one woman each with diabetes, multiple sclerosis, ankylosing spondylitis, polycystic ovary syndrome, eczema, epilepsy, pulmonary embolism, and deep vein thrombosis. The other thing about this is uh, we did not um, specifically clarify in the survey whether these were medical conditions that the woman had currently or during her pregnancy. So I, I'm I'm pretty sure that not all of women with these, some of these conditions had them while they were pregnant. And as to whether or not um, the women who were counseled were not to go above 8,000 feet were those um, who had underlying problems, uh, I, I really just, I, I can't tell the answer. I don't know the answer to that because uh, it's tricky to tease it out of the data. But my feeling is that uh, it's not something that people necessarily even think to ask their provider about. Yeah. And particularly we, you know, a lot of women in our survey lived in places like the front range of Colorado or uh, Washington and Oregon where they had, you know, easy high altitude access. And so going up for day trips was just sort of part of their normal behavior. And it might not occur to them to talk to their doctors about it. I think there's also a real lack of awareness about this amongst OB providers. There's a, another table, table one. So get this, I was amazed. A quarter of the women drank, that's crazy. And <laughs> I was amazed. Which is remember, um, you know, 20% of these women came from countries where um, having a glass of uh, wine with a meal 
is um, uh, is cultural when you're pregnant is culturally not the same as it is in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Well, you know, I feel that you know, having read the paper, I have a better handle on some of the issues with regard to pregnancy complications. And you mentioned that a woman not living at altitude had an odds ratio of 2.3 to have preterm labor, which some physicians, you know, might say, yes, you know, you're going to altitude, you're going to have preterm labor. But it was interesting because the confidence interval, if I remember right, it's between 0.97 and 5.4. And, and from what I understand, it means that maybe there's a risk, maybe not, since that confidence interval crosses one. And did I draw the right conclusion on that? Yes. So uh, as I hope many of our listeners know, um, when you calculate an odds ratio, that gives you a, a risk um, of having a condition versus a, another group that doesn't have the condition. And the, uh, the confidence intervals give you an estimate of how, what, what the extremes of that risk could actually be. And so when it's one or 0.97, that means there's not really any risk. And so that's the lower limit of our odds ratio. And 5.4 means that there could be up to five times the risk. And um, when we do the statistical comparison, which we did as a t-test, um, uh, it, it comes out as statistically significant. But I think you're absolutely correct to say that because of the way those odd ratios go, it, if you did this in a, a larger population, um, you it may, may very well turn out to not be a real risk. And I, to me, this finding was interesting because one, this was, has been sort of a anecdotal thing that uh, people have observed about non-high altitude residents traveling to high altitude. And um, there's been, a, there's some surveys that have like ex examined um, perceptions of OB providers in high altitude communities who feel like residents are more likely to have preterm labor when they come up there. And um, so I think this is, uh, it justifies doing uh, a, a prospective study looking specifically at this issue. The other thing that's important, I think, is that this was just a general risk of preterm labor and we, uh, we did not stratify it by, um, whether the women went to high altitude during their first trimester, second trimester, or third trimester. And as you might imagine, the risk for preterm labor is obviously a lot higher in the third trimester. And I think um, what I'd like to see is a future study where we really look specifically at um, women in late pregnancy who, who do this. All right. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting. And, and, you know, you didn't uh, look at, you know, trauma, which, you know, obviously you don't want to get any, you know, third trimester trauma. And it seems that as other papers confirm, your study mentions a risk for intrauterine growth retardation, but you know we're unsure what degree that needs to be fleshed out. But I guess it, the paper points out to me too that I can warn my students, my patients, my clients, whoever I take you know with me on some of these outings, or whoever would you know ask me for advice about some of these things. And one of the other things is that we need to be keyed in to watch for AMS and not to willy-nilly give acetazolamide for AMS if you have a pregnant woman, especially with its uh, potential teratogenic effects. Yeah, two, two comments. One, thank you for bringing up the IUGR because um, there is actually a typo in table five, a couple typos in table five on the copy that you folks received. Mm -hmm. So the 
the risk of IUGR was present only in women who lived at high altitude. And we define that high altitude residents in our study as anyone who spent more than 140 days or two trimesters at high altitude while they were pregnant. And so that risk of IUGR in high altitude residents that we saw in our survey is consistent with previous prospective work that I and others have done in places like Bolivia and China um, and Saudi Arabia. So, but in women who only traveled to high altitude or had brief exposures during pregnancy, there was no difference um, in IUGR in those, uh, between those and women who, who had no high altitude exposure. Um, and so on that table, that little statistical thing has some, uh, is, that's not quite, um, uh, that's compared to all other women, high altitude residents versus all other women. And then um, the uh, preterm labor was more common statistically in women at high, high altitude versus not high altitude, which we already talked about. And then um, the first trimester bleeding thing was women no altitude compared to both other groups. So just to clarify those symbols on the paper, which should be correct um, for listeners who finally see the um, actual copy on the web. So uh, IUGR is really a complication of women who live at high altitude, and we did not see that as a risk for women who just had short travel to high altitude. Mm. And then uh, the thing about AMS is interesting. We, and we actually deliberately did not end up asking about that because the symptoms of AMS are so um, specific, and we're talking about recall, and a woman may have had a headache when she went to high altitude or, and you know, self-labeled it AMS. And we just didn't feel like that was gonna be reliable data. So we actually did not specifically address that in our paper. But because of the physiology of pregnancy, which actually causes a dramatic increase in ventilation, uh, pregnant women consistently have higher oxygen saturations than non-pregnant women at any given altitude. Yeah. And in theory should actually be at lower risk for getting AMS. And there are no case reports, case series. I mean, I follow this literature, I've scoured it. I find nothing to report a case of either AMS or more serious altitude illness like hape or haste in a pregnant woman. And if anyone knows of one, please, I want to tell me. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Well, Linda, I want to maybe take this home for our listeners. What would be some recommendations which you would just tell a pregnant patient, no, don't go to high altitude. <laughs> um, I mean, there's almost no one I would just say that to because I think <laughs> people need to be involved in their decision making for one. But sure. um, so the uh, International Climbing Federation, the UIAA, actually has guidelines that um, list several specific contraindications for travel to high altitude during pregnancy. And these are conditions that would impair oxygen delivery in either the mother, the fetus, or both. And they include underlying chronic hypertension, other risk factors for preeclampsia. This would be things like a prior history of preeclampsia, twin gestation, diabetes, underlying kidney disease. There's several others. Um, women who have already diagnosed preeclampsia, um, evidence of any kind of impaired placental function, so someone with an abruption or any kind of abnormal placenta that was identified on an ultrasound screening in pregnancy, women who already have diagnosed IUGR, women with serious underlying heart or lung disease, and um, anemia and smoking. 
Mm. And th these contraindications are not based on any clinical evidence about women, pregnant women traveling to high altitude. Um, the, the smoking recommendation comes from two case series where um, women were taken to an altitude of um, 2,000 meters, so below 8,000 feet. In, and then another one where they did the same study in a hypobaric chamber to a, 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 an altitude below 8,000 mm. feet. Mm. They, they were in there for an hour and one woman in each study, and I think it might could have even been the same woman, I'm not sure, these were studies done in Switzerland, smoked a cigarette while she was mm. at high altitude. Wow. And, and they, they watched the baby have a, a D cell. <laughs> that's hardcore. Oh my and God. that's, that that's where that recommendation comes from. Wow. So <laughs> <laughs> that's great. What I, my personal opinion is, um, first of all, our survey is a select population. I mean, we targeted athletic outdoorsy women because we wanted to get people who had been to high altitude. And we were lucky in fact that we got, um, you know, we were able to get equal numbers of women who do athletic things, but who, who did and did not go to high altitude during pregnancy. Um, but, you know, I don't think you can extrapolate to non-physically uh, fit women or a general population because I think that's a little, I, I think this is, a, a, we do have somewhat of a special population here in our study. But I think that, uh, so most healthy fit women who are having normal pregnancies, though, there's really no contraindications. There's no evidence to suggest that it's dangerous. Um, but I think if there's, it makes sense that if there's any complications going on, those women need special monitoring. And speaking now is more of a, you know, a mother and a clinician rather than a researcher. Pregnancy is a, a, a special condition. And if anything goes wrong, you know, that woman will blame herself for the rest of her life. Why did I take that trip to the mountains? Right. Yeah. So I think that there has to be a really um, important discussion about um, personal preferences and risk tolerance. Linda, I wanted to jump in with a question, if you don't mind. And I, I think it's probably putting you on a spot because uh, it might be a little bit tricky one, but I really liked how we were able to glean a lot of information from this. And if you could close your eyes and think a couple of years down the road or, or maybe sooner, but let's imagine that the uh, Wilderness Medical Society produces a practice guideline on pregnancy and going to altitude. What, what piece of this paper do you think are, are, are part of in, uh, the information that you, you put together here? What piece of this do you think is that you would see uh, in that practice guideline? What's, what's one of the strongest things that we've learned from this paper? So for me, it's that um, basically healthy, fit women have no, really should not worry about short-term travel to high altitude. Mm -hmm. And the yeah. kinds of the rates of complications that we saw are similar, if not lower, than what's reported for the general U.S. population. And yeah. um, so, certainly, there's nothing to suggest that it's dangerous. And um, I think, in most cases, healthy women with uncomplicated pregnancies can be reassured that there's not a big danger in going to high altitude. Yeah. And that situation is totally different than women who live at high altitude. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this is, 
This was a real great discussion. Thanks, Daryl, for the questions. Absolutely. Thank Linda for the uh, the explanation. Uh, Thanks we, for having me. Yeah, it was it was it was a really good discussion, and I I want to jump over to our next paper now. Uh, this is the Wilderness Medical Society Practice Guidelines for the Prevention and Treatment of Drowning. Uh, this is a, a pretty good paper here as far as uh, uh, going through recommendations, uh, reviewing the literature, uh, practice guidelines. To talk about the paper, we have one of the authors, Justin Semtrop. Uh, Justin, you're on right now. Would you mind just taking a minute to introduce uh, this paper and, and talk a little bit about what you did here, and then we'll introduce the reviewer. Jay Gupta is on, uh, and he's got some questions for you, but go ahead and just uh, talk a little bit about it, introduce the paper. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm Justin Semsrott, and we wanted to kind of go through the literature and put together a uh, kind of a comprehensive review because so much in the wilderness and even in the urban setting has to do with, uh, with water, and there's a lot of varying degrees of training and skill and competency and uh, as well as since 2002, there's been a real renaissance in our understanding and the amount of resources that have been dedicated to understanding the physiology of drowning. And so we really wanted to put all of that together into a, a neat package for the wilderness community. <laughs> Someone's enthusiastic. Yeah. We have some commentary here from, uh, from my one-year-old son as well. So. <laughs> Great. And Jay, you're on the line. Uh, Jay Gupta, he has some questions uh, that he's put together just to, to try to get into the, the guidelines here a little bit. Uh, we also have Tracy Cushing. Sorry, Tracy, you're on as well. Um, this is a special, a special treat to have two authors uh, from the paper on at the same time. So uh, between the two of you, Tracy and Justin, feel free uh, to, to do a little bit of back and forth and, and Tracy join right in. Um, okay. And Jay, uh, Jay, why don't you start off with your first question here, and uh, we'll do a little bit of back and forth. Sure. Uh, Justin and Tracy, thanks for, uh, for being on the line. Um, you know, I really want to actually thank you for getting these guidelines um, out there. I mean, I think drowning is one of those, uh, as is uh, defined by the WHO, a, a true like, public health emergency. I mean, there are over 300,000 uh, deaths a year worldwide due to um, drowning. It's something that definitely... Uh, clinical syndrome and situation that needs to be um, addressed. So I, I really very much enjoyed going through and reading your guidelines. I had um, just a couple of questions, and uh, one of them just had to do with one of your recommendations about uh, CPR. And, um, you know, they are kind of current layperson recommendation and standard is, um, you know, hands-only CPR and circulation first, uh, you know, before any uh, attention to the airway or rescue breaths, just uh, as that pertains to the traditional cardiac arrest patient. And I know you guys had mentioned, and this is really looking at the uh, kind of pathophysiology of drowning, at recommending that airway is prime and um, trying to break the cycle of cerebral acidosis by applying oxygen or rescue breaths or, or what have you, depending on the situation, is primary. I guess with that, and I, I fully agree, but my one uh, question is that is, you know, kind of very much in contrary to what the general layperson kind of accepted approach and understanding of what you do in a CPR situation is, you know, what do you guys think the, the, the challenges are going to be to kind of disseminate 
that information to um, you know a very specific kind of clinical situation. Because you know we're, I'm thinking about this scenario, maybe just you know a couple of families on a picnic, you know at a lake, and there's a drowning. And if these are all lay people, you know are they going to go to kind of hands-only circulatory CPR first? So I guess how are you going to get the word out, or what are going to be the challenges to kind of getting that uh, change in process out? Uh, to making that kind of traditional ABC model, airway breathing first to, let's say, the lay population or to a um, hiking guide or outdoor guide or to, uh, you know, a river guide, you know, this kind of group that's going to be around water that, that might really be affected by your recommendations. And um, so with that, I would say that the CPR guidelines, as they are written, are really focused on being a public health intervention. And that is from a strictly statistical standpoint, uh, particularly in the developed world, most of us are likely to encounter somebody with coronary risk factors who has a sudden VFib or VTAC arrest and they still have circulating oxygen and rather than focusing on the airway, do compressions only as a bridge to getting an AED or advanced care there. And we know through the work with emergency medical dispatchers that the uh, lay public with no medical training can uh, satisfactorily provide chest compressions and there is increased survival with that. On the other hand, with drowning kids and some of those other special situations, I think that the guidelines have almost been a victim of their own success in that people feel that the compression only will kind of save everybody in every situation. And so what I've tried to do when I speak to these other organizations and parents is I ask them, why are you taking a CPR class or what's your reason for wanting to participate? If it's to assist kind of in the general public if it were to happen while you're out at the grocery store or if you're taking care of an elderly family member then maybe just a community CPR class with compression only and AED is appropriate but if you're taking a CPR class because you have children because you have uh, a duty to respond in or around the water while working as a guide or you yourself are out on the water and you want to be able to rescue and uh, resuscitate your peers, those classes all include uh, compressions and ventilations. The only difference is it's CAB instead of ABC, which realistically, once you're several minutes into it while waiting on additional resources to arrive, it doesn't really matter which one started first. And so that's kind of splitting hairs um, for me, as long as compressions and ventilations are done. And that is nothing that's new to the um, to the guidelines. Tracy, do you have anything to add? One other thing about these guidelines is that in addition to being published in sort of a evidence-based peer review format in the journal, they are going to be starting to be published online open access in Wilderness Magazine, which is the magazine of the WMS, available and specifically geared towards a pre-hospital or non-medical audience, such as river guides, climbing guides, camp counselors, what have you. And so hopefully one of the focuses when we break these guidelines down for those people will be airways important in, in resuscitation and CPR and drowning. And that'll be one way to hopefully get this information out to those people. Great. Jay, do you want to go ahead with your next question? Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, thank you very much for that, uh, that response. So, you know, one of the other questions, and I'm going to, I'm going to throw an assist to, to Jeremy Joslin out here, who's got a significant EMS and you know, kind of operational uh, background, is um, 
you know, kind of looking at the guidelines, particularly on, um, you know, submersion times and um, kind of cutting off, um, you know, resuscitation is that, uh, you know, many regional and state protocols still use 60 minutes of submersion um, as a kind of cutoff or threshold time for termination of uh, efforts. And, um, you know, your recommendations here are really with uh, about 30 minutes for someone who has a documented submersion time uh, in water greater than six degrees centigrade, um, you know, and then 90 minutes for water that's less than six degrees centigrade. So I guess, how do you, um, you know, how are you going to reconcile to some extent uh, kind of these differing recommendations, one from a come a, from an EMS medical control side, um, you know, versus clinical side. So it's, would you recommend to some EMS medical directors that they should really kind of change their protocols to 30 minutes if there's the documented, or I guess documented submersion time of 30 minutes versus the 60 that a lot of protocols currently have? Yeah, and so a lot of that has really um, changed quite a bit in the last couple of years with more robust uh, literature reviews and evidence-based guidelines that are starting to come out with it. And uh, I'm sure we're all aware that we often hear about those cases where a child is submerged in icy cold water for more than an hour and then has a good neurologic outcome. And those are the rare case reports rather than the norm. And so there were a couple of studies that were done that really showed that submersion time greater than 25 minutes had universally bad outcomes with very poor neurologic uh, survival, if any at all. And then there was a separate study that was done that looked at what about all of these rare case reports? Can we glean anything from them? And in all of those, it was really if it was a child under six years old and water that was less than six degrees centigrade, then there was survival as far out as 90 minutes. And so with unlimited resources, unlimited safety, and unlimited hope, then we would search for everybody for as long as we could. But the reality of the operational environment and the safety of the rescuers may be that we have to get down into the gorge, you're using aircraft and other high-risk operations in order to actively search that there has to be some kind of limit at some point where the guidelines have to cut off and that there has to be some sort of evidence base for it. And so I think that units for warm water and using the 90 minutes for colder water incorporate those. And the UK Fire Rescue Services has freely available online what I think is a really good practical guideline, which is you are doing a dynamic risk assessment every 30 minutes. So from the time you arrive on scene, you say, is it safe for us to even begin this operation? Yes. And then at 30 minutes, is the water cold? If not, then transition to a recovery. If the water is very cold and the scene continues to be safe and you continue to have available resources, then you go out to 60 and then 90 minutes. Okay. That does make sense. Uh, let's see. Uh, Tracy, did you have anything else to add? No, I think I think that's a pretty good summary of the recommendations. Okay. 
Uh, Jay, do you have any other questions or comments yeah. on that? No, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I really like these guidelines. I think they were very well written. I think they, uh, you know, clarified a lot of different topic points of a syndrome where there's a lot of, um, not syndrome, you know, a, so I guess a syndrome that's a, uh, kind of uh, has variable practice patterns associated with it. So you know, I think this is excellent. And I think, you know, the take home for me um, is is going to be very much the duration of resuscitation and in people with, uh, you know, varying submersion times and also the observation time for uh, for uh, children or people coming in, uh, you know, post-drowning. So, um, you know, I think this was uh, really wonderful, and I think this is uh, really a huge step in kind of dealing with this huge public health emergency that you know affects people worldwide. So, thank you guys very much for taking this on and uh, authoring this uh, paper. Yeah, I do have another question uh, for you guys, if you don't mind. Um, so, when I was reading through this, uh, I was looking for a specific section on the disease process, formerly known as dry drowning, and I like uh, I like the section on using uh, correct definitions with either literature or even in clinical practice and, and the, the use of the, the term dry drowning, how it really doesn't fit into uh, the, the current rubric of how we should be defining and naming and describing uh, patients or processes with this. And I do know that I see that you did have some information about laryngospasm. Uh, I just wanted to just maybe talk for a second about uh, going back a couple of years uh, working in the emergency department. I had a mother who brought in a, a two-year-old child who looked uh, very well and healthy and rambunctious and uh, asked, asked the mother why she had brought the child. And she said that he had fallen over into a mud puddle a couple of hours ago and saw something on the news about dry drowning and was concerned, absolutely positively was concerned that the child had a risk for dying soon uh, because there was something on the news about a child who had had a similar fall into a mud puddle of sorts uh, and had a bad outcome. And I just remember kind of going back and, and trying to find some of these news pieces and seeing a lot of misinformation or at least uh, over-dramatization uh, of, of this uh, particular syndrome. So I was wondering if you, if you guys wouldn't mind just commenting on that for a minute or two and uh, what are your thoughts about that? And, and I noticed that you didn't put a specific section in there addressing it, um, but, but really did sort of get into the, the meat of what the issue is with that, which is the laryngospasm. Yeah, and I think we really wanted to be clear about definitions in drowning and a lot of the common terminology and even medical terminology that's still incorrect with regards to drowning. And so you know, dry drowning, wet drowning, near drowning, all of these other terms. And so we, we specifically didn't want to give it its own section because that would sort of reinforce the fact that the terminology really isn't necessarily that helpful. And the final common pathway, whether it's, you know, laryngospasm or actual inhalation of water is going to be hypoxemia that has to be addressed. And so, you know, as medical providers, clearly we, we have different ways of managing those two things, but ultimately it's the same final common pathway. And I think that's why we, we chose not to give it its own section. Yeah, that, that certainly makes sense. And, and I would add to that also that your question was, was absolutely perfect because even as you went through, you used several different definitions of the term dry drowning. Um, that we see appear both in the the lay media and in some other medical reports. 
And that is some have used it to mean laryngospasm, some have used it to mean death after the initial event, after they leave the water, and there really is no commonly accepted. But even when I debate this internationally with some of my colleagues in Australia, the UK, and New Zealand, is it means different things over there as well. And what people at the end of the day, I think are really worried about is, will there be an asymptomatic period after they're pulled out of the water that then they later have complications? And that I think is really the, the heart of it. And what we know from the available published literature, even going back to Dr. Spillman's chest article in 1997 is that a very small percentage, half a percent to 5% of minimally symptomatic drowning patients later die. And so our recommendation would be then that if they have even minimal symptoms when they first come out of the water, that they need further evaluation. And the example that I always give is we've all been at the dinner table before and had some water go down the wrong pipe. You cough, you sputter for a few moments to try and clear that upper airway irritation. But same thing with somebody that's been rescued from the water or had a non-fatal drowning incident. And then if the symptoms persist beyond what you would expect at the dinner table, then that probably means that there's some water in the lower airways and they need to seek treatment in an urban setting. In the wilderness setting, they need to be watched for about four to six hours. And if they continue to get worse over that period, then they should continue with evacuation. If they are back to 100% normal at four to six hours, then they're going to continue to be asymptomatic. But there's certainly a lot of fear in the media that these symptoms are going to develop 12, 24, 48, or 72 hours later. And by far, my favorite definition was from the old Swiftwater handbook, which was the parking lot drowning. Mm. And so I, I, think that, um, I think that that would be the practical advice that I would give. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, we're so lucky to have uh, uh, all of the authors here, uh, two very rich uh, papers that we were able to discuss today. I want to just take a moment to see if there's anybody in the audience who has questions about uh, either of these two papers. Uh, this is journal club format, so uh, other questions from the audience certainly are welcome. We don't have to. Well, we're going to transition now and going to try something new. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, one of my favorite parts of reading wilderness environmental medicine is the case reports. And this coming issue, uh, we have several great case reports. Uh, and I just wanted to run through them real quick. I think case reports, uh, to me, they, they provide just a, a, a glimpse into how somebody else took care of a particular clinical problem that I may face uh, maybe tomorrow or, or, or later on. And so I just like filing away those, those nuggets of information. So let me just go through these fairly briefly. Um, think of this, this as a, a, a teaser of sorts, and you're going to have to get into the journal and really read them uh, yourself to, to get into the, the meat of it. So the first one I have here, subtle cognitive dysfunction in resolving high-altitude cerebral edema revealed by a clock drawing test. So this was a case report of, uh, of a gentleman who presented, 49 years old, presented uh, at a high altitude clinic uh, with some subtle cognitive dysfunction. They thought it, it might likely be due to high altitude cerebral edema that had not fully resolved. And they performed a clock drawing test, which did show 
was abnormal, which therefore showed the patient had cognitive dysfunction. And I, I think what they were doing was using this as a more sensitive test for cerebral dysfunction than a sort of gross or informal mental status exam. So this was kind of interesting. I think this is uh, an interesting application of this test, and it's going to probably spur some research. Uh, mark it down. Uh, mark my words, because I think we'll see this again. Uh, the next case report I have here is uh, lightning strike in pregnancy with fetal injury. So this is a, a case report of uh, lightning strike. And interesting, uh, they review a little bit about lightning strike injury. There's only 13 cases of lightning strike in pregnancy that have been previously described in the medical literature. There's seven more with media reports. Um, but this was a novel case of uh, lightning injury resulting in fetal ischemic brain injury and long-term morbidity. And it's a, a good brief review of the mechanics of lightning strike and lightning injury. The next paper, uh, case report, is a case report of two buried victims, uh, victims of avalanche that were rescued by this device. And the title is uh, Avalanche Survival After Rescue with the RECCO, R-E-C-C-O, Rescue System, a case report. Hmm. And uh, this is about a device. It emits radio waves. It's got a specific reflector that you, you carry around and move around. And it helps to find buried victims who aren't wearing a avalanche transceiver. So this was a, a case report of that. Even though this particular device seems to be not uncommonly used, it seems that there's a dearth of medical literature or case reports on its use. Uh, so this was contributing to that. The Did next live, Jerry? Did they, or was it a recovery? No, actually. Uh, so this this was uh, two victims, and they were they were both uh, extricated alive. Uh, the, the timing here, uh, I don't have the timing in front of me, but uh, less than 35, less than 35 minutes uh, for the one. And I'm just skimming it to see. I don't see the timing of the other. But uh, yeah, two, two victims successfully extricated with this device. Hmm. The uh, next case I have here is uh, fatal honey poisoning caused by Tryptorygium wilfordii hook F in Southwest China, a case series. That's a mouthful. Uh, but uh, basically, uh, this is a case report of three workers who ate some wild honey and came down with something called uh, mad honey. Uh, is this a mad honey syndrome or a mad, mad honey poisoning, uh, which is something that I will admit I hadn't heard of before. Uh, and had to, to do a little bit of research about um, this mad honey poisoning basically is when uh, toxins in a poisonous plant's nectar uh, get picked up by bees and made into honey. And those toxins uh, go from the, the poisonous plant into the honey and then humans eat the honey and they're poisoned by it. Uh, so this was a case of uh, this Chinese traditional herb, the Tryptorygium is the genus. Uh, it's abbreviated TWHF. So they figured out that these three workers ate honey that had been produced by bees who obtained nectar with, uh, from this particular herb that was toxic. 
so that's a pretty interesting case. Uh, one of the patients actually died of acute renal failure uh, from this, so it's a pretty serious syndrome. The next case is, uh, forgive me, I'm missing the title of this, but this is a, a case report describing a 56-year-old gentleman with a partial unilateral corneal opacity and edema at uh, 150 kilometers into a 161-kilometer mountain bike race in high altitude. He developed this uh, unilateral corneal opacity and edema. It recovered on its own in about three days with no sequelae. Uh, this is a, a very brief review of this subject, which has um, recently been described, I think, um, of a transient corneal edema. I know that can be seen at altitude and can also be seen in uh, ultra-endurance type sports. Uh, so this is an interesting case, and uh, I would highly recommend uh, looking at the, the case report itself. It's got a great picture of the cornea, so you can see what this looks like. Uh, the next case, this is a, a case of an alligator snapping turtle uh, that uh, bit a 15-year-old boy, and he sustained a near-total amputation of his second digit. Uh, I grew up in the country myself, uh, and so I was always on the lookout for these snapping turtles. Uh, I didn't grow up in this area of the country that has the alligator snapping turtle. And again, I would highly recommend uh, pulling up this case report. There's a great picture of this quite ugly snapping turtle, if you know what snapping turtles look like. I'm sure you'll agree with me, unless you happen to be a, some sort of a turtle lover. And uh, there's also a uh, map with a distribution of where this particular species is found. This case report uh, has some merit because it's the first case of such an injury that they know of to be reported in the medical literature. Uh, again, look at the case report. There's some good pictures documenting the injury, documenting the animal, and documenting the distribution of this particular species. But even, uh, even when I was a kid, I knew better, uh, or at least I knew enough to, to stay away from snapping turtles. And the, sort of the urban legend is, once they bite, they don't let go, and uh, you'll have it on you forever. Uh, <laughs> have you ever had a run-in with a snapping turtle, Daryl? No, nah, there's not too many here in uh, New Mexico, so <laughs> I can't say that I have. But actually, having uh, dove in Hawaii, yes, there was a lady on our trip who decided to feed the cute little turtle, and not a good idea. Yeah. I see there's still, still uh, a number of audience members. We've got a couple more cases to go. Does anybody have any questions or comments about the ones that I've kind of gone through pretty quickly? Just uh, from being here, I want to give you a chance if you're here. Okay. So just a couple more. Again, this is, this is what I love most about this journal is kind of uh, going through these case reports. I feel like a, a kid at Christmas uh, just, just going through these. So the next one is a two-striped walking stick targets human eye with chemical defense spray. Um, again, walking sticks were one of those insects that uh, grown up in the country were a treat to find. Uh, this particular species is not found in New York where I grew up. Um, and uh, dig into this case report, there's a picture. This thing is pretty ugly as well, I got to admit. Uh, not like the walking sticks uh, that I grew up catching. Uh, this particular uh, walking stick uh, is able to spray a def chemical defense spray, and this is a 
case of an older woman who was exposed to the uh, venom uh, while in her home. She was reaching for detergent on the shelf above her washing machine, had a run-in with this insect and it sprayed her in the eye. She sustained con conjunctival injection and tearing, went to the ER and it improved with water irrigation. So this is, uh, this is something that has been reported in the literature and uh, there's a whole range of, of injury that's been reported with this particular insect, but this is sort of a reminder case report and a brief review of the literature on them. Wow. The next case here, uh, this is first reported case of fatal stinging by the large carpenter bee. And this is a uh, scientific name here that's with the genus is Xylocopa. And uh, this is a novel report of this particular type of bee uh, previous to this report, there's been no reports in the literature of this particular uh, bee uh, having any medical significance. And so this was a 59-year-old healthy male. He was a manual laborer out working on a fence. Um, it was bordering a forested area. In the morning, a flying insect emerged from a dead tree trunk, stung him on the face, and he basically developed uh, signs and symptoms of anaphylaxis and later uh, succumbed to those injuries and died. So uh, this was a pretty significant case report uh, because before this, this particular kind of bee hadn't been known uh, to cause this, this type of uh, injury or illness. And it's thought that somehow uh, this, this patient had been uh, previously exposed to the antigens um, that caused him to have anaphylaxis from it. Uh, this is in Sri Lanka. And again, previously, uh, this hasn't been reported. This, this case report is, is done uh, extremely well, uh, describing the etymology uh, with some great detail, with some good pictures of the exact insect that caused this uh, fatal injury or fatal illness, uh, and some other uh, pictures of this large carpenter bee. The next case report is snake bite by the shore pit viper uh, treated with polyvalent antivenom. So this is a 40-year-old male. He was bitten on his right hand by a snake. This is in Singapore. Uh, later on, uh, this, this snake was identified through photos and a description to be a shore pit viper. The patient went to the emergency department and was given antivenom. Uh, there's no specific antivenom for this species that is available uh, in Singapore. And so they, they tried a, a polyvalent antivenom from India uh, and it worked well, it sounds. Uh, and so this was a description of using this polyvalent uh, Indian antivenom uh, against this particular snake bite species. Uh, for just a, a brief review, because this is something I find interesting with uh, my travel and, and work in wilderness medicine, I'm always trying to stay up on what are the top most likely uh, envenomations that could incur to a, a client or a patient or a peer or myself while traveling. And so I, I like to, to read up about these things. Uh, and so just by way of a, a quick review, uh, because I was just in India reading about this India polyvalent uh, antivenom. Uh, so this, this particular uh, uh, antivenom 
contains antibodies against the four most common venomous snakes in India, which I think are helpful to know. They're the Indian cobra, the common crate, Russell's viper, and the saw-scaled viper. So that's this case report. Wow. And uh, the next one I have here is bitten by a dragon. That's the name of this case report. Uh, it's a, a brief report of a 38-year-old woman who was bitten by a Komodo dragon on her hand while cleaning its enclosure. This took mm. place in the U.S. Uh, the, the review mentions how Komodo dragons rarely attack humans. There's very little, very little literature about this happening. They do uh, do a, a good review of what is out there. And they introduce uh, two, two concepts in this paper about bites of Komodo dragon. And that's, uh, I, as I understand reading through this, there is some literature to suggest that this particular uh, lizard has venom, even though it's, it may not be a traditional type of venom and, and there's not their traditional delivery system with the teeth. Uh, but there's some discussion about some glands that secrete a substance that, that may be venomous. Uh, and again, that's uh, debatable uh, and, and, and reviewed in this report. And then the other concept, which I think is interesting and informative to just think about, is there's a model called bacteria as venom. And basically, the, how this model plays out is, uh, or the thought is that even if there isn't venom delivered by this bite, that the bacteria that are passively acquired by this animal that's eating carrion and, and other things, the bacteria in the mouth are, are so uh, dangerous to be inoculated with that that bacteria acts as a pseudo-venom uh, by causing such severe infection uh, with morbidity associated with it. So uh, that, that model is also uh, debated in the literature, and there are some counterpoints to it. Uh, I'm not here to, to say which of or if either of these are, are true or valid, but I think are interesting concepts to consider. Uh, certainly, it was interesting to me as a wilderness medicine practitioner. So there you have it. There's 10 case reports that I thought were uh, quite interesting. And uh, anybody have any other questions or comments on these? Crazy stuff. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, this concludes uh, Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live. Uh, thank you all for joining us. Thank you to the authors and the reviewers uh, for coming together and having a great discussion. It was really nice to get deep into the weeds on those, those two papers, and I really enjoyed the discussion. Thank you all for listening, for participating, and have a nice day. All right, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Wilderness and Environmental Medicine Live is a service of Wilderness and Environmental Medicine, the official journal of the Wilderness Medical Society, published by Elsevier. All material is copyrighted by the Wilderness Medical Society, all rights reserved. Contact us at WEMLive at WMS.org if you have any questions about the show or are interested in being invited on our next recorded journal club. Claim your CME credits for listening to this show by going to WMS.org, completing the quiz questions, and attesting to your participation. We hope you've learned something new today and enjoyed doing it. <laughs>